From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. We are kicking off Black History Month in fine fashion. The civil rights movement in Philadelphia in the 1960s included the desegregation of Girard College, led by Cecil B. Moore and the Cecil B. Moore Freedom Fighters. We visit with a group of them as they share personal accounts and their struggles and triumphs along the way. A boot police officer put his foot on Debbie's chest. She's 14 to hold her down. Good news about the Colored Girls Museum in Germantown as we hear from Day Howard. We have the variants that we need to continue here in her home as her museum. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. The Cecil B. Moore Freedom Fighters were a group of young activists who fought for civil rights and racial justice in Philadelphia in the 60s. They were led by Cecil B. Moore, a lawyer and politician who served as the president of the Philadelphia NAACP chapter. The Freedom Fighters are probably best known for their successful campaign to desegregate Girard College, a private school that excluded black students. They also organized protests and voter registration drives to challenge discrimination and inequity in various sectors of society. We have the honor of having some of the Freedom Fighters here with us today. Please welcome Karen Asper-Jordan, president of the Philadelphia Cecil B. Moore Freedom Fighters, and fellow members Bernice Mills-Devon, Richard J. Watson, Leroy Bobby Brown, and Jabril Abdul-Jalil. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you. And I think we should also note that Karen Asper-Jordan is a KYW Game Changer alum from the class of 2023. So we knew when we heard your story and you were uh, voted as a Game Changer, we definitely wanted to take some time and talk to you about your experiences as a freedom fighter. Now, as I said before we started this program, I absolutely don't take lightly that I have so much history sitting in the room with me right now. And whenever we get the chance to talk to people who have firsthand accounts of historical events, we absolutely have to take advantage of that chance. But first, I'd like to go around the room and ask everyone, what inspired you to join the Freedom Fighters? Bernice, I'll start with you. Uh, My family and I had just moved to Philadelphia from Norfolk, Virginia, and they were demonstrating at Girard College. And that was my introduction to uh, Philadelphia's style of demonstrating, but I had participated with the NAACP youth down in Norfolk, Virginia. I got to say Norfolk, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Although we weren't permitted to do the sit-ins and, and that voter registration, we wanted to do something to um, lend support. And how old were you at the time? At that time, I think I was about 11, 12, something like that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Richard J. Watson. Yes. I only lived two blocks from Gerard College in 1963. And um, when I woke up that morning of uh, May 1st, I heard the commotion of cars in motion. I heard a lot of noise about two blocks from where I lived. And I was a second-year student at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And so... nearing the end of the semester, and so I walked down to where I heard the noise Mm -hmm. and uh, saw the police jeeps. I was on the opposite side of the gate, and I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of policemen 
surrounding, surrounding the walls. And so I followed that trail back to the gate, and that's where I saw that the assemblage of uh, more policemen. And uh, the picketers had not grown to such a great velocity. That was the first day. And so I found out it was a demonstration. And the second time I came back, there were more people, Cecil B. Moore, and some of all of us there. We didn't know one another that time. And I was an artist with a sketchbook. So that's the short end, the more to come mm-hmm. later. But yeah. I was introduced to the whole aspect of the civil rights movement because I was an artist wanting to draw people and get some experience to get my facility wow. as an artist. Okay. That, the rest of it is going really, really deep. Yeah, understand. Thank you. Mr. Leroy Bobby Brown, what inspired you? I was working across the street from Gerard College at a barber shop, and I would notice, like, when kids walked by, the kids would throw water on them or pee on them. So I was very curious, and I talked to Cecil and a guy named Henry Reddit, and we talked, 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 and Henry was telling me that they was going to the wall. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you go to the wall, I'm with you. So after them, I went to the wall with them. And after them, that was the beginning of it. And after then, I think we stayed in nine months, 14 days the first time. Mm-hmm. I missed no days. Yeah. Cut a couple of head of hairs and run back to the picket line <laughs> and walk around the line. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Miss Karen, as for Jordan... Your first accounts and how you got involved with being a freedom fighter. Well, I got involved when the flyers came around about going to the wall. Okay. And uh, my father's family lived across the street from Gerard College on College Avenue. I lived on the other street, Thompson Street. When the uh, call went out to demonstrate, we just wanted to see what was going on. So a lot of kids and I went around. There were shoulder-to-shoulder police officers, and those wooden horses, they call them wooden horses, they were lined up end-to-end mm-hmm. all the way around to Gerard Avenue. So we walked around. On the way around, we were harassed by not all the policemen, but a few of them. And uh, when we got to the front of Gerard College on Gerard Avenue, we told Cecil B. Moore what happened. And he said, they're not going to be messing with my damn people, and he storms off. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, we watched didn't demonstrate the first day. You know, we didn't know anybody, and I didn't know the songs. And then after we kept going around, and you learn and you watch, mm-hmm. you just took that step to join the picket line. If, mm-hmm. if you can just explain a little bit, everyone was talking about going to the wall. What does that exactly mean when you say going to the wall? Because it was a big wall, a 10-foot wall, Gerard College, mm-hmm. and we called it the wall. Got it. It encircled the whole campus of the college. How many acres is that place? Like six yeah. blocks. Yeah. All around, and... Um, the Wall of Jericho is how we got that moniker about the wall because as we were picketing and the picket signs and the songs started to generate, freedom songs generated from that. And um, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Mm-hmm. That became our mantra. When we say the wall, it meant yeah. Gerard College. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Talk about Cecil B. Moore and, you know, his involvement and determination to desegregate Gerard College and when everyone got involved, the climate at the time and, and how he helped lead you all to do that. I knew, I knew him. I remember the, um, the mummers 
and they had to get a, an injunction to stop the blackface in parades. And mm-hmm. Cecil said, if you bring that blackface past South Street, we're cutting all that black to red. But the NAACP was an organization for what they called the elite middle class. He changed it from an elite organization to an organization of the people. And that's what made it so powerful here. It became the largest branch. And Philadelphia was a special place. And he galvanized the people because he made the people understand that if you stand together, you can make a difference. And, you know, he just changed the framework. And he was the winningest defense attorney. And we had faith in him. Catherine Terrell would say, we'd follow Cecil to hell. She said, it doesn't mean we'd stay, but we'd follow him to hell. Wow. And that's how much respect and that's how much belief we had in him. Because he was, the, we say, the baddest man mm-hmm. out there. And to have a man in his position with his intellect, with his savvy, with his Marine Corps presence, mm-hmm. because he was a Monfort Point Marine, and they were the Marines to desegregate the Marine Corps in 1942. He brought all of this to Philly. He was a strategist. He didn't just send you out there. And we were protected as teenagers mm-hmm. and regular people because then demonstrations were more controlled. Okay. We knew where to walk. We knew what to do, and it was always somebody to look out. So this is the man that we followed. Okay, all right. I want to talk about some of the challenges that you all faced during that time um, working for the desegregation of Girard College specifically. I knew there are some stories of things that have happened. <laughs> Bernice, if you want to get into some things, some memorable uh, stories. Yeah, I lived at uh, 20th and Girard, mm-hmm. which was right up the street from um, Girard College. And uh, there were a, a number of incidents. One is that uh, come feeding time, the Salvation Army would come out in their van or truck, and they would give uh, sandwiches and fruit to the police officers. But those who were demonstrating, we had nothing. So my mom and the lady next door to me, Ms. Miles, they would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and things of Kool-Aid and they would bring them up to the wall. That's one incident. The other was that it was a 24-hour display of desegregating Girard College. And at night, when there would be more adults, because a lot of his teenagers had curfews, and one of the things that Cecil emphasized was education. He was okay with us coming out and demonstrating, but he emphasized getting your education. So once the curfew and the, us would leave, the police officers, they had those old Jeeps at that time, like look army Jeeps, and they would turn them so that the exhaust would sicken mm. those demonstrators who yeah. were there late at night. That's a couple of the instances, and I'm sure that others would have uh, something to add to that as well. Mr. Watson? I think the, uh, the aspect of terrorism is what they employed against demonstrators. Personally, I got taken to the police station for drawing people. I had my sketchbook, but Mm -hmm. they didn't know what I was doing. They just know I got a book, and I'm black, and I got a pencil on it. Maybe I'm a little bit educated, and they don't like that kind of stuff back in the day. Education, intimidation, uh, police were rampant about invading your privacy or violating your civil rights. You know, come here, where are you going, what you got in your pockets. You know, those kind of intimidating tactics to try to use. And I was going home, and he pulled me over, and he um, said, what do you got in the book? Uh, yeah, I'm drawing. I said, I'm an artist. What are you drawing? My book had a title on it. It says, Handbook for Saboteurs. 
I'm an artist, okay? So uh, you could have anything on cover of a sketchbook. And they thought I was uh, some kind of guy, like, getting ready to blow something up. So they took me down to uh, 17th and Montgomery, and uh, they were going to intimidate me and put me in there. But they didn't book me. They took me into the little room. Before I know it, I hear the clamoring outside, and some people had marched on the police station. Uh, they came to get me. So mm-hmm. there was a certain kind of camaraderie that was established at that point for me to say, boy, this is a second family. These people are closer than yeah. family. They mm-hmm. like don't even know me, but they were standing up for my civil right to be able to do something. That's a guy who's drawing pictures, right. mm-hmm. being intimidated by the police. So it encouraged me to uh, get a deeper bond, a closer unit with Bernice and Karen. And then we find out that we're all neighbors anyway. Now we're brothers and sisters combined. And Bobby was the barber who was cutting my hair up until that point. He was just a guy we would just joke around. And if you haven't been in the barbershop, most of us have. You know, we grew up in that barbershop culture. Yeah. We became very uh, close about other things, more so than just shop talk that goes on in the barbershop. I think it was like a couple of weeks after Dr. King's visit was August. And... When people see that movie Selma, that they call it Bloody Sunday, we had something similar to that at Gerard College after uh, Dr. King's visit. At that time, Frank Rizzo was one of the police commissioners. And although we had permits to demonstrate at Gerard College, for some reason, Frank Rizzo comes out and he tells the police officers to break it up. And it was at that time, it was still a lot of people out there. And when he gives them those instructions, they came, they were on motorcycles, they were on horseback, and you had the the boot police officers. And what they did was they rushed the crowd with the dogs, okay? And people start running from Corinthian Avenue at the entrance of Gerard College. They started up Gerard Avenue, and but the bulk of them started up towards 20th and Gerard I had gone home because they had the porta potties, but the demonstrators weren't permitted to use them. So because I live close, I walked home. And when I came out my house, I see people rushing there. It's a mad rush towards uh, 20th Street, 19th Street. And as I look up, my sister, my younger sister, who was 14, she was coming out with my other sister. They were coming up towards 20th Street as the dogs and the police officers were chasing the crowd. On Gerard Avenue, there was cobblestone sidewalks. My sister tripped and fell, and the dogs, the police dogs, jumped on Debbie, and they started biting her. And my older sister was pounding on the dogs to get them off Debbie, and the police officers came, and they yanked her off. They turned Debbie over, and they put a boot police officer, put his foot, on Debbie's chest to hold, she's 14, to hold her down. And they picked Debbie up. They arrested her for resisting arrest, obstruction, uh, something against the police officers, which was the dog. They took her down to Philadelphia General Hospital, which was down at 34th Street. And then they treated her for the dog bites. And then they transported Debbie to the Youth Study Center, which was on the parkway, which were where Barnes Foundation is right now. That used to be uh, the Center for Children with Behavioral Issues. And Cecil Moore came, and he said, how are you going to charge a 14-year-old who was attacked by dogs 
who was brutalized by an adult police officer. I think she got like six months probation. And it was a mess. It wasn't as brutal as down in Selma, but it was in that same mode of police behavior. And I'm from Virginia, so I know what police brutality was like. So to come here and see that same thing happening, it was a rude awakening because you can say, wow, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm up north, you know, and when people come from the south, they're like, this is the glory land. Right. But you right. always you keep your guard up because you know that behind that big smile, there's something else. Yeah, that's a horrible, yeah. horrible story. Horrible story. Yeah. But stories like that and incidents like that, it, it, it never stopped you all from saying, you know, what? I'm going to stay home. Uh, I'm not no. going to be involved in this anymore. No. There's a spirit that goes around. And it's very scary to see a horde of Roman gladiators rushing at you or Nazi stormtroopers. I saw it, you see. And this spirit, it arises in every generation. Justice is always going to prevail, you know. That's just God's way. And we had an enemy. Our enemy was the media. We were communists. We were radicals. And the police had blackjacks. They didn't have the clubs they had now. They had blackjacks. Some of them had blackjacks with barbed wire wrapped around them. You know what I mean? And um, I would just like to commend the ghosts of those that are not here. You know, I would like to sing my song to the unsung heroes. Cecil broke the paradigm of let's not be so nice anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Cecil became like a bulldog against the state right. mm-hmm. that we were in. So right. Cecil's attitude changed the perspective the whole, of the yeah. legal interpretation of the restrictions yeah. to Gerard Collins. Okay. See, and on top see, of that, yeah. when we were arrested, whatever was going on, there was a cater of lawyers. Cecil couldn't do everything by himself. Right. Right. There were lawyers. You had other organizations helping out. And you had people working with Cecil behind the scenes that yeah. couldn't put their faces mm-hmm. out there. You had judges. Okay. You right. had other attorneys. You had big-name people that supported the movement. You know, there are ways that you could support a movement without having your face out there. Right. Talk about the reaction to the climate once the college was desegregated, once this was won. Um, what, mm-hmm. was it, what was it like? What was the feeling like? Well, we were happy. You know, we did this. Oh, right. yeah. We had the opportunity to meet some of the... First former students, I remember their names, the Hicks brothers. They were very brave because the attitude that had been fermenting for years, the attitude that kept blacks out of Gerard College, you know what I mean? They had to encounter that. And uh, at first they told me that it wasn't a very pleasant experience. They were threatened, intimidated, but they carried on through. You see, sometimes still tears come to my eyes, you know, because I'm so touched by the nobility of our purpose. Mm. I know in my heart and in my soul that if I never did anything right, I did that. Mm -hmm. I did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can I add, too, that the Hicks brothers talked about being intimidated continuously, not just first semester, Mm -hmm. but throughout these boys would say to them, when the lights go out, we're going to kill you. Mm. Now, could you imagine a young boy being in a school with just him and his brother and 1,400 white boys? Mm. Not even the sympathy of young ladies or teachers who would say, you leave him alone. We're going to kill you when the lights go out. 
They endured that till they graduated. First in their class. How about that? Mm-hmm. And their mother, God rest her soul, she was there at that school for her children. But you have to make those inroads. Somebody always has to be there first and take the brunt of everything. Yeah. When we made inroads to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Yeah. I kind of like to piggyback off Karen. We have been invited back to Gerard College to participate or be guests of a graduating class. They just celebrated their 175th anniversary. And we were a part of that celebration. So apparently we've done something yeah, good yeah. because we're we're constantly being invited back to speak to the student body, to share our experiences, to let them know that even though you're at this age, you can still do something that's going to impact someone else. Children have to know how they got to where they are. You know, we can't do the things that we used to do when we were younger, but we're there as a voice, we're there for mentorship, and we're there to stop the kids from making some of the uh, mistakes that we made. And our main thing is to tell those kids to stay in school. And that's something that Cecil said. And when we were coming up, the teachers used to tell us, that's something that nobody can take away from you, your education. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what you know. They can't take yeah. it away. That's right. Yeah. Karen Asper-Jordan, Bernice Mills-Devon, Richard J. Watson, Leroy Bobby Brown, and Jabril Abdul-Jalil, Cecil B. Moore Freedom Fighters of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. Okay. I so much appreciate it. You want to sing a song? Okay, should we sing it? Please. Ain't going to let nobody turns around, turns around, turns around. Ain't going to let nobody turns around. We're going to keep on walking, keep on talking, heading for the freedom land. I made up this song for Cecil because we talk about the walls of Jericho. Cecil won the battle at Gerard College, Gerard College, Gerard College. Cecil won the battle at Gerard College and the walls came tumbling down. down. One more. Ain't light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Cecil got a shotgun. Cecil got a shotgun. Cecil got a shotgun. I said, do you want your freedom? Oh, yeah. That good old freedom. Oh, yeah. I said, do you want your freedom? Oh, yeah. That good old freedom. Oh, yeah. I said, Bridging Philly continues in a moment.
back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Vashti Dubois, founder of the Colored Girls Museum, received some good news about keeping her home and community space. More now with Shara in the City. Vashti, thank you so much for having us back at the museum. Now, you've had a year, a really busy year, quite complicated, but you say you've grown. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we uh, received a code violation in April of 2023, so that was almost at the beginning of 2023. And we've really been operating under the cloud of that since then, quite honestly. So next stage, you've had a community hearing. The community showed up. Uh, Listen, we're here, I truly believe, because the community showed up in such force, in such numbers. It was really, I'm going to use the word, it was breathtaking. And I'm almost uh, embarrassed to say I was not prepared for that because we should be prepared for our community to show up because we are a community museum and this was a community issue. And I'm, you know, I'm still reeling from what it felt like to have that kind of support from our neighbors and other ordinary colored girls and colored boys and accomplices. Like, I feel like this was a citywide effort and I'm so grateful. It really was. And it turned out that, so it turns out that now we have the variants that we need for the Colored Girls Museum to continue here in her home, as she should, at 4613 Newhall Street as her museum. And that's a huge win, I think, not just for us, uh, but at this moment, in this city in particular, where we have the first black female mayor, we have a Harriet Tubman statue, the first public monument of a black woman coming into the city. It feels like, yes, we should also be acknowledging that we have the first and only museum that centers black women and girls. That just seems like it should all go together. Were there any contingencies or things that you had to make adjustments for the future? That vision had to change a little bit. One of the violations that we're responding to is that the Colored Girls Museum is in an attached house so that we were responding to that. A museum can't be in a twin. Mm -hmm. And the other violation that we were responding to is that it couldn't have a dual use. It couldn't be both a residence and a museum. So next stages, like you have an entire road ahead of you. What do you see? So we're scheduled to come back online in March, as we always do. And it's really wonderful to be looking ahead of us. We obviously, we lost some ground while we were going through uh, this zoning process. You know, we were advised that we had to sort of lighten how we presented programming. Uh, So that, it cost us. It cost us spiritually, emotionally, economically, um, organizationally. So we're becoming back from that, but really excited to be bringing in a new show in March Um, which is connected to what's going to be a year and a half campaign. You'll have to keep up with us to learn about what that is. But we're just really, really, we're grateful. We are in a state of gratitude. 
that's going to be reflected in this spring programming. One thing you definitely need to look out for is the opening of the outside living room, which will be scheduled for the beginning of May. And that is when we hope to introduce the garden with her vessels and hopefully her gateway, which you will also be hearing about. Oh, I love it. I love it. But you need help getting there. So let's talk about how the community can help once again. How can they show up? So once again, we're calling on the community, this time knowing we're going to need your help in raising the funds that we're going to need to make this spring return. Because that's what it feels like, the spring return of the Colored Girls Museum after having gone through this very long winter season as we waited to get an answer as to whether or not the Colored Girls Museum could stay in her home here at 4613 Newhall Street. I can't think of a better way to say thank you than to raise up this garden, which will pay tribute to ordinary Black women and girls. And I hope that we can count on you as we get ready to drop a fundraising campaign to make sure that that happens. At this point, this is a new start for you. This is a new start for the Colored Girls Museum. So we are going to begin again. And that it is also tied to the spring feels really, really special. That it's tied to the garden is really, really special because we all begin again in the spring. And, you know, sometimes the winter is hard. So it was a hard winter, girl. It was a hard winter. And that winter lasted a long time, well past, you know, the dates we typically have for a winter. And although we were optimistic at the Colored Girls Museum, we also know that you can never be sure. So this celebration, this reopening, this spring begin again is really powerful and significant for the Colored Girls Museum. I hope that you will join us. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program, Organ Donors Save Lives. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.